Hello, and welcome to this episode of Big Problems, Small Solutions. Today, I'm joined by Mark Cowley from the Children's Cancer Institute in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Mark. How are you? Great, Scott. How are you today? Good, thanks. So Mark is part of the Zero Project for uh, Childhood Cancer Research, and they have recently put out a paper in Nature Medicine last month talking about whole genome, transcriptome, and methylome profiling, enhancing actionable target discovery in high-risk pediatric cancer. So I've invited Mark to come and share a little bit about his research. Great. Thank you, Scott. Um, So this publication reflects about, well, an idea that's at least seven years in the making and about five years of concerted effort to essentially try and develop a national precision medicine program for children with cancer. Um, Children with cancer is the leading cause of death in the Western world. And there's about 1,000 cases a year in Australia, about 11,000 in America. And the cancers that children get are often quite different to adult cancers, and so they need a dedicated approach. And so this publication reflects what we've been trying to do in Australia on this matter in the, the context of the Zero Childhood Cancer Program. Yep, I've had childhood friends that uh, just one day I woke up and found out that they had leukemia. So it's truly a a real problem that needs to be solved. It it absolutely is. I think we all know, we know cancer's everywhere, right? We all know people with cancer and family members and friends and childhood cancer is especially devastating. Um, I guess there's a bit of a stigma that adult cancers are sometimes, you know, it's a disease of aging, a disease of, it picks up mutations that happens when cells divide and a, and a disease that can be picked up from environment and uh, smoking habits, sun habits, those sorts of things. But, but for kids, mm-hmm. it's totally different. It, you know, for leukemia, it can be one, one genetic mutation is all it takes to transform that cell into a leukemic blast, and, and away it goes. It's just quite devastating how fast it happens and how seemingly randomly it happens. Yeah, you can't really look at a childhood cancer and say oh well it was how they lived that caused it yeah really just comes from potentially a random mutation yeah i mean some of these kids are born with their cancers right a number of the children on our study were you know not even one yet um that's 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 a rough hand rough hand to be dealt yeah sure is i'll talk a little bit more about what we did if you like Certainly. All right. Cool. Cool. So there's a lot of large scale, including national pediatric cancer precision medicine studies and adult cancer studies. And there's a lot of, there's no, there's no rules as to what the best molecular profiling approach is. And five years ago, you know, the stigma was, well, why would you do whole genome sequencing for children? We know they don't have very many mutations, so why would you bother? How can you possibly do this fast enough to have a clinical impact? And what are you, what are you going to discover over and above standard pathology testing, which already looks for gene fusions and point mutations and, and, and amplified genes? Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the context of where we started. We were lucky to have access to the, the new, at the time, HiSeqX whole genome sequencing technology. So the, the cost of a genome had just dropped fivefold the year before. And so we really set out to challenge ourselves by saying, can we do this fast enough to have a clinical impact? Can we add whole transcriptome sequencing as well to see if we can predict 
whether any of these genetic mutations lead to activation of genes or suppression of genes. And furthermore, over the, over the course of the project, the utility of methylome arrays, you know, looking at DNA methylation genome-wide and was, became a really powerful tool for classifying particularly brain tumors. And so mm -hmm. now our brain oncologists are, you know, they almost won't do anything until they have the results from that classifier to confirm the diagnosis and, and guide their treatment. Yep. Um, Can you mention a little bit about what methylation of a certain gene will actually do to yeah, a patient in the long run? Of course. So, so methylation is, is one of the epigenetic marks which control how genes are regulated. So you might have a perfectly intact gene, but if it's hypermethylated, you have these, these chemical marks just upstream of the gene, then that gene will be silenced and will not be turned on. So it's as good as if, as if it was completely deleted. Completely um, down-regulated. That's right. So cancers are complex molecular things, and there's lots of changes going on in every patient. They're generally different in each patient or different combinations at least. And so we thought that looking at that methylation data would give us an additional layer. Some of that information is in the RNA sequencing data, because if a gene is overexpressed or underexpressed, you, you might expect there's an epigenetic reason. Um, but there's plenty of other reasons why genes can change in their level. So, so really it's DNA profiling, then epigenome profiling, and then RNA profiling to try and put those three data types together and mm -hmm. see if that improves our understanding of each patient's tumour. Does it improve our rates of discovering uh, potentially targetable genetic changes? You know, a genetic change that's linked to a, a modern uh, targeted uh, drug or mm -hmm. therapy or combinations of these things. Um, I guess that's what we set out to try and do. Uh, I guess I'm talking to you because we, we had a bit of success in being able to do that. Uh, well, yep. Successful research is oftentimes what gets put in the media, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I can uh, give you a little yep. nutshell of, of the results, if, if you like. Yes, please. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. So, so putting these three platforms together uh, allowed us to find what we believe is at least one genetic driver mutation in each tumour in 94% of the patients. And that was higher than we expected. Um, there's still 6%, so that, that means there's research to be done. Um, what, what really I think there will be research to be done and, <laughs> until we're, we're old and grey. Definitely. Um, the most striking result, I think, though, was that in 71% of patients, uh, we found a genetic, a, a genetic change that we believe led to a, a targeted treatment recommendation. And why that was surprising to us is that all of the children on the study had high-risk cancers that either failed every possible line of therapy uh, available to them, or they're from cancers that we otherwise didn't know how to treat. And so for 71% to find an option, whether that... Where there previously was none. Where there previously was none, that's right. So whether that means a conversation with the pharma company to get that drug off-label for compassionate use or whether it meant enrolling the patient onto a locally available clinical trial, um, that, that's, that was much higher than we expected. Uh, I guess that's the biggest reason to keep doing this, is that it's finding things that were otherwise missed beforehand or would traditionally not be looked at when you do a traditional approach of looking at what the textbook says should be in that tumour type. Mm -hmm, definitely. If the, 
if the current science doesn't do what it, what you need to do to survive, then you have to break the paradigm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and we know that children's cancers are driven by a type of genetic change called a, a fusion, structural variation where two chromosomes are broken and then joined together. And whole genome sequencing is a really powerful tool for studying those types of genetic changes. And I think about a third of the genetic changes we found in these patients were, the, were structural variation that we believe would be quite hard to find with any other technique. And when you bring the RNA sequencing data in, you can confirm that indeed that DNA change has led to this aberrant transcript where one half of gene A is joined to the other half of gene B, and that's uh, an oncogenic uh, gene fusion, we call it. Many of those things are now quite druggable with very specific uh, targeted inhibitors. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone knows, well, the cancer world knows about the BCR ABLE translocation. It was the first fusion that led to a, a targeted therapy called imatinib. And if that patient has that fusion, they're extremely sensitive to that drug. And today we have a, a brand new therapy called laratrectinib, which works when uh, one of the genes that's fused is called an NTRK, NTRAC1, 2, or 3. And if we find those fusions, it's, a, it's I guess we're calling it a slam dunk. It's, it's an instant recommendation for this brand new therapy called laratrectinib. And it seems to work in any tumor type, solid tumors, brain tumors. And we've had some extraordinary responses from that particular recommendation. And that, that drug only came out halfway through the study. Uh, so it kind of tells you how fast the, the drug development field is also moving. Definitely. So um, a couple of questions maybe uh, that we can discuss your research. So this project relies on like whole genome sequencing. Uh, and you mentioned that the cost of it has dropped significantly. But would this particular technology be useful for, let's say, a patient that hasn't presented symptoms? Or are you currently intending it only to be used for patients with a determinable cancer? It's, it's, it's a tricky question, Scott. So I'll answer it a couple of different ways. And one is that the last five or six years has seen the uptake of the use of whole genome sequencing in patients with disease, whether that's children with rare genetic disease, where you're trying to find the genetic change that caused the, the disorder, or in cancer, where you're trying to work out you know, what's driving the tumour? Are there any mutations that help inform treatment decisions? That's the sweet spot right now in the research. There's lots of evidence suggesting that's a sensible strategy. If you're to apply whole genome sequencing in patients without a condition, then I guess it might make sense if that patient is at very high risk, maybe because of their family history, and you wonder whether there's a an inherited genetic reason, perhaps the family's predisposed to cancer or predisposed to um, a particular genetic disorder, then sure. I think it might make sense to apply that technology to asymptomatic individuals, find the genetic change, and hopefully then potentially prevent or at least monitor the onset of that condition much more uh, proactively. If there, there are efforts globally often in private companies today, to apply whole genome sequencing in otherwise completely healthy individuals. So there's some executive health programs that seek to do a whole range of testing, genomics, metabolomics, lipidomics, and a, and a regular GP consult. I think 
Um, Craig Venter's company, HLI, is, is one of those. I think there are others. And they're seeking to address what utility whole genome sequencing might have in addition to other tests in otherwise healthy individuals. I think if you had your public health hat on, you probably wouldn't recommend that because it's an expensive test and the person would otherwise no obvious Symptoms. challenge. And it doesn't need to be hit with a bill for it. That's right. And it's a much harder analysis. You know, if you've got a patient with a disorder and you know something about their characteristics, you kind of have a clue which genes to look at. And if you find the mutation in the gene, then the case is closed. But you've actually got to turn over all the stones and look underneath them in a healthy person and really ask the question, is this predictive of a, of a health impact? And so mm -hmm. yeah, a much harder, much more involved process. Um, so just to recap, the, the sweet spot is applying it in people with, with a condition. You can use that genetic information in unaffected individuals in the family straight away. So if you've got a, let's say you're a family with three children and your oldest child has an inherited genetic mutation that we believe predisposed them to developing cancer. You've done the whole genome sequencing and you found the genetic change. You don't need to whole genome sequence the rest of the family. You can just look up. You can do a, a, a more simple genetic test on that specific mutation. That's a much more gives you a, way of yeah. um, Gives you a, a smaller target to aim for in, in family members. That's right. So there are familial cancer clinics, which I'm fairly uh, familiar with. So if we find a genetic change in a child on the Zero Childhood Cancer Study, we might refer, I should say, 16% of the children in our study had an inherited genetic variant. That was double what we were expecting. And what that does is results in a referral to a family cancer clinic. And then that particular patient will have the genetic variant reconfirmed in a clinically accredited lab. And then they'll do what they call cascade testing, which is testing other family members that are potentially at risk. And if you've got a sibling that doesn't have the genetic change, then they're at normal population risk for that disease. If they have it, then you start to think about what that means for tracking that patient. Do you do, you know, there's some research studies starting to do proactive whole body MRI imaging and spotting tumours just as they arise when they're tiny. I think mm -hmm. that's a really exciting new wave of, of screening programs for really genetically at-risk people. Definitely not standard clinical practice yet, but there's some research publications showing that that's got some, some utility. Fantastic. Um, when you're talking about these high-risk cancers in pediatric patients, um, you'd assume that some of them are in, like difficult to biopsy areas like right. the brain or various places like maybe the heart or the the muscles around it. Mm. Um, so when you get your omics profile and all the methylation data, do you have to biopsy these tumors or is there potentially like a lower risk area that you could biopsy and then get this, this whole genome information from? That's a really good, important question, Scott. Uh, so a lot of precision medicine studies, including zero, start with a solid tumor biopsy. And you, you've hit the nail on the head for a child with a brain tumor or a, or a bone tumor. That's not much fun. And it's so, certainly not a strategy that you'd like to be doing every three months. Um, so for obvious reasons. I'm sure the child wouldn't want to be doing it either. Oh, absolutely. Just, just be horrendous. Um, so that's a great segue to what's happening in the field of uh, liquid biopsy. 
And that's the idea that um, I guess that well, let's start with the, the concept that in, um, in mums at about 10 to 12 weeks of gestation, uh, they can have a blood test to detect whether their, their fetus has Down syndrome. And the test works because the fetus is shedding little fragments of DNA from their, their body into mum's blood supply. And you can detect that signal because Down syndrome is an amplification of, of chromosome 22. And so at a certain mm -hmm. age, the fetus is large enough that you can detect that signal. It's exactly the same idea in cancer. And if you have a tumour that's large enough, it's shedding fragments of DNA as those cells uh, die, because these cells die often. And you can actually detect the signal in these circulating tumour DNA fragments. This is opening up an amazing possibility for uh, monitoring patients from a minimally invasive blood test. And um, I guess the holy grail, and there's a company called Grail, to do early detection from this. Right? An otherwise healthy person would have a blood test and they're trying to develop a cancer detection test which is sensitive enough for population scale screening where you really care about false positives and, um, and accuracy and has the ability to predict which cancer type you might have from that blood test. So we're really Amazing. interested in this. We've been funded by the Australian Cancer Research Foundation to develop uh, the, the, the ACRF Child Cancer Liquid Biopsy Program. And so what we intend to do there is once a patient is enrolled on the study, so we know they have cancer, is to then follow them every three months via a blood test. And um, ultimately, we hope, monitor their tumour journey and how, it, how that tumour changes over time in a way that's both more sensitive than existing biomarkers, if there are any, potentially more sensitive than imaging, so MRI imaging. Um, and I'll admit that one of the big challenges is that in the brain, there is a thing called the blood-brain barrier. So those fragments of DNA don't escape the brain that easily. And that's a challenge that we need to think about how to overcome. Sure. Oh, all very interesting. Um, in the paper in Nature Medicine, very prestigious, I might add, congratulations. Um, the Zero Program talks about three major you know, methodologies for profiling whole genome sequencing. Um, but when you talk about potential future uh, applications of this, um, is the pipeline that your project's created um, looking to have the ability to like slot in any new uh, diagnostic tools or data that becomes available? Yeah, that's it. I think in, a, in an essence, yes. Uh, so we added the methylation profiling uh, not halfway through, about a third of the way through the study because it, it was quite clear that it has utility in, in classifying brain tumours and now we're mm -hmm. sending that test to all tumours because in the meantime there's been some research saying it's good at classifying sarcomas, soft tissue tumours. So that's one example of adding a test. We know that in genomics nothing stays still. Um, there's long read sequencing now, which is potentially going to be more effective at, um, at you know, resolving these complex patterns, these complex structural variations that we've observed. So that's, that's a hot contender for joining the pipeline at some point. Um, 
it's a little way off, I think, now from being the single test that does all of your DNA sequencing because the accuracy is still a little bit worse than the existing technique. But the long reads have some really powerful uh, value add. Uh, liquid biopsy is another, another technology that we want to add, um, as I've just explained. Proteomics is a huge one. You know, the idea of you know, DNA encodes RNA, which encodes protein, and it's the proteins that are really important in the cells. So starting to bring along proteomic technologies and whether they can be done in real time, I think they can be done fast enough, but I gather there's some challenges in how do you interpret an individual patient because the experimental design is often putting in a, a batch of 20 patients together of the same cancer type or the same disease type and and then the signal can be can be seen from amongst that group. That's a bit different from the precision medicine paradigm where you might have 20 completely different patients all being investigated at once. So we're optimistic about proteomics and think that that could come in in a couple of years and we're working with Australian partners and, um, and uh, Canadian partners on, on how we might do that. Um, I think the last one is, is really thinking about immunoprofiling and for a long time we've thought of cancers and we're looking for the mutations in the tumour cells but within a cancer biopsy, there's a whole bunch of immune cells surrounding that tumor. And the interplay between the tumor and the immune system is really important. We're increasingly understanding that. But there's not much information at all yet on, on children about how important the immune environment is. And so I think that's a different type of molecular profiling test that we would like to bring into the program as well once we've worked out where it's useful to do um, and whether it's cost effective and things like that. Mm -hmm. And potentially like affecting the science of immunotherapy in these types of tumors as well? hundred percent, yeah. The, the hunt for the, the biomarker, which will predict which patients respond to immunotherapy is, is well and truly, uh, it's well and truly active. For a while, we were convinced it was tumor, tumor mutation burden was a great biomarker in adults. A few papers have really started to challenge that idea. And so now we're starting to think, is it, is it tumors that have lots of mutations, this high TMB biomarker? Is it tumors that have lots of PD-1 or PD-L1 expression? These are important immune uh, receptor molecules. Whether it's uh, the location of those immune cells relative to the location of the tumor cells, are they inside it? Are they around it? Are they a few nanometers away? You know, these are, these are really important questions that I think are almost completely misunderstood or understudied in kids. And I think this is a, an area where we're watching the adult literature, adult cancer literature, you know, with great hope that there's some breakthroughs. Um, so it's the hunt for the biomarkers really a, a very active thing over the next few years to try and, because that's the, these, these therapies are, are expensive and you really want to give it to patients that you expect will work. And that's, that's the ultimate refinement of precision medicine is getting that biomarker that says this drug will really quite likely work in this patient. Absolutely. Well, that was a fantastic uh, look at the Zero Cancer Program. Thanks very much, Mark, for agreeing to be on. Thank you, Scott. I just wanted to shout out to all my colleagues that, that helped uh, on this work, especially in the, the hospital at the Sydney Children's Hospital, uh, Kids Cancer Centre and, and colleagues at Children's Cancer Institute for all their hard work to allow me to be able to talk to you, Scott. Fantastic. Yep. We uh, 
no one person ever gets these uh, research prog- programs on their own. That's right. So, yeah, we're all propping each other up. Indeed. All right. Thanks again, and thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time.